one of the one of the things that should be very disconcerting to Christians about the present moment and the culture in which we live is an increasing belief among people that um, for all that we might say about normal morality, ends really do justify means. That if you're not willing to do whatever it takes to change the world into whatever better vision you may have in anointing yourself for having that vision, then that's what makes you a bad person. Saying in moral restraint, I can't treat another human being that way. I don't have the right to do that action to bring about the changed world um, is looked down upon. But what I want you to see in this passage is that a Christian can never believe that. Um, And your political or social tribe may disown you for it, and you should prepare yourself for that, whether it is a nativist nationalism that might tend towards racism or whether it is a communistic or statist kind of idea of socialism. All of those views, the views that eschew the biblical morality of stewardship, all reject the idea that there are things humans do not have the right to do. And ultimately, it is God who meets things out. You see, the whole logic of this passage has built within it the concept of injustice. That is, that when he says God is able to keep the righteous through their trials, what he's saying is, no matter how horrifically you're treated, the reason why you can have the hope to love your enemy as yourself, to always acknowledge and care about their humanity no matter how much you think that you should treat them differently, no matter how much rage inside you wants to treat them in a different way, what you need to realize is, is that there is a way of godliness. And it does, actually does not matter what's going on around you. There is a way of godliness. There is a way that's like Jesus. And it acts in certain ways. And you can stay that course no matter how you're treated because God knows how to save the righteous through trials. Remember, the the Bible actually never tells us that it's our job to save the world. It's our job to be leaven or or to be godly in the world that, that you are a steward, you own nothing, but you are in charge of everything that's in the hands of your life. To administrate over it, to lead it, to steward it the way the king would want you to invest it. Not the way you want to do it, not the way I want to do it. And God's, the fact of God's future judgment is actually what focuses us on that. And also, it's not our job to kill our enemies. It's not our job to destroy everyone that doesn't believe what we believe. We have a right to self-defense, but we don't have a right to revenge. And the reason we don't is because God reserves that for himself and because God is able to hold the unrighteous for punishment when? On the day of judgment, he says. You see, if, you, if, if as a Christian or as a human, you don't, you don't believe this passage, you can't believe any of the other passages. You'll give up. You'll become a pragmatic person. You'll say things like, yeah, that sounds nice, but I have to do this to get there. 
what this passage is meant to do is to help us recognize that it's actually God's judgment that should motivate us to pursue persevering godliness. Like it says in the memory verse, to make every effort to add to our faith virtue, knowledge, godliness, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And in the next verse, to make to be all the more eager to make our calling election sure. And it's actually not out of fear. It's actually out of hope. Knowing that, in fact, the God who seems somewhat silent in a way that drives you nuts, that that God is not silent, that it, his actions are not sleeping, that what looks like God sleeping and being silent is an, an injustice is actually God's patience because anytime mercy is offered, patience is necessary because there has to be space for mercy. And God, by logical definition, can't judge someone and be merciful to them at the same time. So God has chosen to be merciful. And mercy requires patience, which requires time. And we are called to accept that fact about the king. And in the midst of our position, in the midst of the time he takes to offer mercy in patience, we are told that these three historic events of divine damnation are meant to tell us a very hopeful truth. That God can keep the righteous through their trials until that day of beauty and blessing. And God can also keep those that you believe deserve punishment, those who won't receive mercy. He is able to keep and store up that punishment for them on the day of judgment. And so if we understand this rightly as Christians, the fact of God's certain judgment, even though it's delayed, in our view, should be the very thing that motivates us to pursue godliness with everything that we have. That's what this passage is there for. That's what it means. It's not, it's not here as a threat. It's, this is written to Christians who he's saying, God has given us everything we need to be godly, to really be like Jesus. Not, not powerful like Jesus, not godlings, but to be in our character remade and morally and spiritually like Jesus, that is godly. And we have not yet come anywhere near plumbing the depths of what, what's, what God is capable to do in us. Because it says through our knowledge of Christ and through his very great and precious promises, we can participate in the divine nature. We can experience the spiritual regeneration of God's spirit, other scriptures tell us, and the indwelling of God himself in the person of the spirit. And that can do things you never thought were possible. And the result of participating in the divine nature, the very next phrase says, is, and escape the corruption that is in the world because our evil desires fill us with compulsions. But we can be free. We can overcome those compulsions. And we can live, we can live lives that are godly and also guys, lives that are focused on the patient mercy of God in an era where he is being patient and merciful knowing that it is for something and not for nothing. There's two, two things I, wanna, I think we need to look at related to this. And the first is, is that God's judgment is imminent, though delayed. Uh, he, P, 
Peter uses three examples that, that he believes very strongly are his, real historical events. Now, the, the narrative of the fallen angels is not anywhere in the written Bible literally. Um, a lot of people, historic and present, believe that there's a passage in Isaiah and Ezekiel, two of the major prophets in the Old Testament, that allude to the falling of the angels. But the reason why we know that that story is right is actually because Jesus said it was in Luke's gospel. He said, I was there. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw the fall of the angels. It happened. And Peter tells us that story to say, God is perfectly capable to take a group of unredeemable judged beings and not judge them then, but to put them into, the Greek word is actually Tartarus, like a holding hell, and to bind them there so they can't get out and to delay their final judgment until his final judgment. He's like, they're there right now. They've been there for a long time because God is able to hold the ungodly for punishment in that future day of judgment. You don't have to worry about that. The second is the flood. It says in Genesis 5 that the inclinations of the heart of humans were only evil all the time. That's a pretty bad indictment on that group of folks. And so it says that on the quote, what he calls the ungodly ancient world, God saved Noah, who is called what? A preacher of righteousness. Do you see the distinction he's making? Now, I know that distinction makes us really uncomfortable, and I'll get to that in a little while. But that's the distinction that this passage is making. In fact, the whole Bible does make that distinction, that ultimately for all the diversity in human beings and all the many things worth being interested in, when it comes to final judgment, there is just a binary interest. The righteous and the ungodly. And there will be much diversity in the group that is damned as the ungodly and much diversity in the group that is blessed and saved through trial. Right? And what we know in this passage is God was perfectly capable of wiping out all of humanity in judgment when they deserved it and when God thought it was right. And he was perfectly capable in some big square boat to save all the life he wanted to. Know the preacher of righteousness and all the animals that he wanted to save. And he just, he is able to do that. And then there was a city in the book of Genesis that had become so wicked that you couldn't find five people that could be counted as righteous, is the language of the book of Genesis. And so God only saves Lot and his family. And he, it, it literally says here in Second Peter, he made an example of them. It's just a little scary, right? And Jesus said that of those Old Testament narratives, those three things, he affirms one and he says the other two are there until judgment. That, that, that the prophets, until heaven and earth find their judgment, are present. And part of the reason for that is, is that those three stories are meant to do something to and for us. Right? Now, it's meant to do those two things, right? God can keep the godly through trials, and God can keep the ungodly for punishment on the day of judgment, right? He doesn't have to punish them now for us to believe that he's actually going to be just, right? The reason why Peter brings this up here is not to attack people or threaten people. Like, he's writing to a church. 
to people who believe and say they believe in Jesus. And he's saying, and, and, but there are also people whose lives are really hard. The Roman persecutions have already started. It's decently likely that Paul's already been killed, plus a lot of other Christian martyrs. Christians are already second-class citizens in the Roman Empire. Things are not going well. They're going to go through a lot of trials, and most of those trials they're going to go through because they believe in Jesus the Christ, the King. And he says to them, he's like, listen, do not in this become pragmatic people. Do not think that because God doesn't come and kill Romans who are mean to you, or because you're suffering and you don't know if you can make it, don't break apart and fall away, and don't try to just hang on. No, in those trials, in those times when you have enemies who aren't getting what they deserve, and while all this—listen, seek godliness with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Go back to verses 3 through 11 and see that that is the point of this. Because just as—listen, as Christians, we love talking about the first fruits of salvation, right? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in us is the first fruits of salvation. That is, ultimate salvation in heaven is going to be a lot better than what we're experiencing right now. And yet, the Holy Spirit does things in people's lives right now. Changes us, saves us, regenerates us, and does miraculous things. And that's not salvation. That is something that God does now that points forward. Like, think about this. Um, the Bible clearly teaches that some people get healed. And we've had people get healed right in this church. And we've had other people die right here in this church. People that I've prayed for them to get healed. Why do some people get healed and other people don't get healed? Because, and the reason for that is, is that the ultimate healing of full salvation hasn't come. Only the first fruits. Some people get healed just to show that that's going to happen. Just to show that that future is real. But it doesn't happen to everybody. And it's weird. Some people get healed of like weird stuff, and the people who like you'd think would really need it don't. It's because it, it's not final salvation. It's the first fruits. And what Peter's telling us here is, is that the damnation of the fallen angels, the horrific flood that killed everyone in the ancient world, and God making a destructive example out of Sodom and Gomorrah, killing them all with fire from heaven, is also the beautiful and encouraging first fruits of damnation. God doesn't damn everybody who deserves it. Every human deserves it. If you're here and I'm here, God doesn't damn everybody who deserves it when they deserve it. In those three cases, those are the three cases where the Bible actually says there was no redeemability left. Right? That's what, right? It says about the time of Noah, the inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. There was no, there was nothing but scoffing left, nothing but seared consciences left. And in Sodom and Gomorrah, you couldn't find, besides Lot and his family, you couldn't find any. And listen, Lot wasn't particularly righteous, if you read the rest of that story. Okay? Neither, neither Noah nor Abraham were like Boy Scouts for the whole story. Okay? And yet, they were faithful of faith enough and faithful enough that God credited righteous to them and saved them. But wherever God has seen redeemability, he has held back his hand of judgment in patience, in desire for all of us who are scoffers and sinners and not believing to give us time. Because when, when there is justice, there will be no more time and no more opportunity for us, right? 
The, the question that he knew they were asking and the question that he knows that we would be asking is that these false teachers who are particularly awful because they're leading people away from God's mercy, right? For their own greedies, like they're bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then he says their condemnation has long been hanging over their heads and their destruction has not been sleeping. But the, the problem is, is that people, people, in fact, I had somebody ask me after last week's service, Wait, what does swift mean? Like, I know people who are false teachers, and they've been doing it for decades. And they're still doing it, and they seem like they're still making money and doing fine. And what is it? I mean, why do you think Peter said their destruction has not been sleeping? Why would you contradict an idea? Because someone believes it, right? If you're like, that's not true— you wouldn't just say that like out of the blue for some random thing. You would say that if you think somebody believes it, you'd be like, listen, I know you believe this, but it's not true. You see, what he knows is that the people who are receiving this letter, the people of this first century church, all of the humans who've ever believed in Jesus, who are waiting for his return and final justice, and who go through trials, many of them including because they're Christians, have always felt like, what are we waiting for? Like, are you asleep? Like, what, what is going on? What could possibly merit? What reason could there possibly be for you to wait? Right? And this has led to a lot of Christians misunderstanding um, what we call the imminence of Christ's return or the imminence of God's judgment. Um, at the very end of Second Peter, there's this place where Peter says, listen, there, there's this guy, the Apostle Paul, who wrote like 13 books of the Bible. He's like, he says a bunch of things that people who are kind of like they're off and they're unstable, they misunderstand and they lead people astray by teaching really like not true things. And you could say what, he's, what Peter's referring to there is just like anything people distort in the Apostle Paul. But it could also be that the reason for this letter— is because he's trying to correct some of the things that people who've misunderstood the Apostle Paul in those parts of the Bible are, like, getting wrong. And one of them is this. When Paul re refers to the return of Jesus and to the judgment of God, sometimes he will use the word, the word soon, right? He'll say, this is going to happen soon. And so you see, by the time Peter writes Second Peter, like 30 or 40 or 50 years has gone by. Probably more like 30, 35, okay? And so people are kind of like, look, if this was going to happen soon— Right? Like, on what definition is 35 years soon? And for us, on what definition is 2,000 years soon? Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to chapter 3. But the word soon can mean two things, okay? It can mean a short amount of time by our reckoning, or it can mean it's next. So, for example, I have children, and sometimes my children will come to me and be like, Daddy, when are we going to do X? So my nine-year-old will come to me and be like, Daddy, when are we going to go fishing? And we're going to go fishing that day, but I have a bunch of work to do. And I know that it's going to take me three hours, but I turn to him and I say, Jude, we're going to do it soon. And what that means is not five minutes. What that means is the minute I get done with this, we're going to go do that. Right? The minute work phase is over, fishing phase is going to begin. And so it is imminent meaning it is the very next thing. You see, people misunderstand what the Apostle Paul meant by soon. They think that he meant, like, right quick. But that's actually not what soon means, and we know that for a couple reasons. One, because Peter takes the time to correct it in two-thirds of this letter. 
And secondly, because Jesus made sure to make it clear in the Gospels. And the reason this is important is like, honest to God, you know people who have lost their faith partly over this. Or they've lost their faith in the authority of the Bible. They're like, look, Paul thought, I mean, Paul thought that Jesus was going to come back in like 10 years. And like, it's 2,000 years later. Listen, on the, on the question of imminence, if a time of God's merciful patience is happening right now, and when that ends, the very next thing is Jesus is coming. Then imminence can mean 35 years after the death of Christ. It could mean before this sentence ends. It could mean 150,000 years from now, where 100,000 years from now, people in the church are going to talk about us as the early church. As long as Jesus comes back at the end of the period of time God has designated for his patient mercy, it is imminent. And from our perspective, it can happen at any moment. In fact, if you look at these passages in Matthew and Luke, in all of these cases, what happens is the master takes a steward. Remember I said, talked about that at the beginning? Somebody who manages something, and he gives them something to manage. You following this metaphor? Everything, we own nothing, our lives is steward, right? And he goes away, and in most of them it says, for a long time or for a very long time. And you see, the servant has no idea when the master's coming back. The master knows when he's coming back. The servant has no idea when he's coming back. That is what Jesus was teaching about the doctrine of imminence. You see, if you believe, and I believe, that imminence means soon, like right quick, then what we're going to say about our trials and about our urgency to love our enemies and to offer the mercy of God with patience is, this is going to be over soon. Okay, so psychologically speaking, that is the worst way to get through something. To tell yourself it's going to be over soon. I cannot tell you how many people I've counseled and they're like, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't. And I'll be like, okay, how are you thinking about whether or not you can do this? And they're always all pressurized by, they're like, this should have already ended. Or I said I could do this for five years and it's been six. I just, it's like, that's why you can't do it anymore. When you like put an artificial end and you like pressurize yourself around it, it's going to create like this collapse in you. Right? Um, I, I think the guy was a, a major, or a colonel, Stockton, who's, um, who's talked about the, the, the Stockton—I can't remember if it's Stockton Paradox. But he was in—he was a prisoner of war in a Vietnam camp. And he said, the people who said, I, I'm going to make it till Christmas. By Christmas, I'll be out of here. Right? When he—they when he, would say that, he's like, here's the problem with that. They would do really well till Christmas. But the minute Christmas came and went and they weren't rescued, they would psychologically collapse. He said it was only the people who said, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I'm going to make it through and this is going to be the defining event of my life. This is going to define who I am and I'm never going to quit. Those were the people that tend to be stable throughout however long they had to deal with that trial. You see? And you see, if you think Jesus is coming back soon or having nothing to do with Christ's return, you just think that God in his providence is going to work you out of your problem, whatever problem you're in soon. He never said he'd do that. In fact, he explicitly is telling you in this passage he's not going to do that. Now, your problem might just end in just the normal providence of God and the flowing of life, but we should understand from this passage that the promise he's saying is, here is, I know how to save the godly through or keep them in trials. 
You see, if you're trying to do something other than that in your trial, then you're not working together with God for how he can give you hope and mercy and help and how his divine power can give you everything you need for life and godliness. Right? But if you realize that he's teaching that his coming is imminent, what that will mean is no matter how long it takes, you'll always be alert. See, in all the parables, he says, he says, then the master comes back, and are they ready? And what have they been doing? And how has this been going? And you see, what he says in every case is, some of them just fell asleep, or they started beating the other servants, or they started, like, destroying everything. And then the, the master came back, and is, one of them says, he cuts them to pieces and throws them in the fire, right? So the issue is, did they stick with their stewardship? Did they hold on to the end? Did they stay doing what they were meant to do until the master returned or until they were relieved of their stewardship? You see, that's the question. And you see, in that sense, it doesn't matter one bit how long God is patient in his mercy with this world. We have the exact same job, and what it should do for us mentally is for us to stay in the game, to say, however long this takes, I'm going to be in it and with it, because no matter how long it takes, God knows how to stick with me the whole way. He knows if I trust in him, he knows how to save me through trials to that end. And I can know it. And, the, and God, God honestly doesn't have to give us any reasons for any of this. And there's many reasons he probably has for many things he does not give us. But in 2 Peter, he actually tells us part of the principle of God's delay. And it's in um, 2 Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. The, the, the some that he's talking to, that's us. <laughs> Who are like, why is this taking so long? Why isn't my life getting better? Why isn't this trial ending? Why am I—right—that's us who think he's slow. He's like, God isn't slow like you think he is. He says, he is—he's not slow, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One of the parables Jesus tells about this is in Luke's gospel, it's the, or in Matthew's gospel, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. You may, you may have heard of this, where these guys go out and they plant this field, and then later, like, the guys next door who ate their guts at the next farm come in and they, they plant all these, like, like, seeds and thistles and stuff, in among the wheat. And so by the time they go and they check on the plants, the two have grown together and their roots are already starting to intertwine. And so the servants turn to the master and say, should we weed this all out so that the wheat can grow? He's like, no, if you pull it out, a lot of the wheat's going to come up with it. That is, if I judge now and destroy all of these, I'm going to kill some that could be saved. You see, spiritually what he's saying is, if I come right this minute and I kill everybody who's a tear at this moment, I'm going to pull up that it's kill what could have been wheat. That is, there are people in the world right now that, that don't belong to Jesus, but they can, right? They could believe. They can come to mercy. That's why he's being patient. That is, some that are wheats now will become—tares will become wheat. That is, he shouldn't come in and pull it up right now. You see, in some, in some sense, if the divine image is, is as meaningful as God says it is, and if in the entire world of eight billion people, God knows there's one human being that is going to go from tear to wheat. On one level, he's entirely justified to let this whole thing spin a little longer. Just for that. 
And if, if we get upset about it and be like, well, we, I want justice, and he's got—listen, if God is doing mercy, he can't be simultaneously doing justice. It's logically impossible. And if God can do what's logically impossible, he can be good and evil at the same time, and so he can be evil and he can still say he's good, right? The argument proves too much. God is being patient and merciful right now, and it's one of the reasons why judgment is being delayed. And the judgment that does come, that he is actively doing, is not justice being meted out. It is just the first fruits of a little bit of that that's happening right now. There's this passage in Luke, Luke 13 where there's this tower that like falls over onto like 13 people. And people were talking about it like, I wonder what those people did. That God would just like judge them like that, right? And, and Jesus says, Jesus says to them, you think they were worse than you? They weren't worse than you. You see what he's saying? He's saying it wasn't even judgment. People just die. And you can think of it in judgment as you want because everybody deserves to die. But listen, he turns to them, he says, listen, unless you repent, you too will perish. That's what he says to, that's what he says to all the people who are talking about this, right? He's like, hey, create self-righteousness conversation. Here's what you need to realize. You all deserve to die unless you repent and receive the mercy of God in the time of his patience, and you come in and receive his divine power that's given us everything we need for life and salvation and godliness, becoming like Jesus the King. Now, um, if this is true— and if we can understand eminence rightly, then the second thing we need to recognize, and this is going to be a lot shorter than the first part, is that God's judgment should motivate the pursuit of persevering godliness. I say persevering godliness because the whole passage of chapter 1, 3 and following is about godliness and about making it to the end and not being unproductive, right? And so it's persevering. In fact, in the list of virtues, perseverance is actually in there, right? Self-control and perseverance. And so we're looking for godliness. It's not a splash in the pan like, I'm going to be good today but like a real change of character that goes over the long period of time that perseveres, right? And these truths, these three stories of God's judgment and God's saving some out of that judgment are meant to motivate that in us, for us to say, this is worth doing, this is for real, like this, we need to, we need to remember because of the first fruits of God's judgment that there is an ultimate one coming, right? And all of Second Peter hangs together on this. It works back from this. Um, God can save the righteous and keep the ungodly, right? Therefore, don't listen to false teachers and pay attention to the apostles and the prophets and what they have taught that's reliable. Therefore, remember what they've taught in remembering the gospel and repeating it and knowing it. Therefore, engage in gracious striving towards godliness and, and be all the more eager for it, but you can't do it, right? Therefore, realize that God has given us everything we need. Right back to grace and faith and trust. Now there's two responses to this that, that God is calling us to, right? The first is um, to turn to Christ for our righteousness. If ultimately God is saving to the end and he's going to keep the righteous through their trials and he's going to keep the ungodly for judgment, then it is very, a very material thing whether we're among the righteous or among the unrighteous or the ungodly. It's very—it's the most material thing that exists. And the only way to become righteous is not by doing better, but by receiving a righteousness from Christ through his death and resurrection, through faith. 
And that's not cheating. He is the king, and he's purchased this for us, and this is how we receive mercy and forgiveness. I can't go into the argument of that. That's the book of Romans. It's a whole other sermon series. But if we turn to God in repentance and faith, not only does he give us the righteousness we need in terms of crediting it to us judicially, but when he does that, we have the right to participate in the divine nature. And through his power, he begins to make us truly and actually godly like himself. Right? But for some of us, we need to turn to him for the first time. For some of us, we need to turn back to him again. For some of us, we need to quit believing that we got beyond this and get rid of the self-righteousness that we've been building and come back to the mercy of God, giving us righteousness, counting us among the righteous, and then making us righteous. Right? And then the second response is to turn to Christ for godliness. That is that we're not just supposed to turn to him to receive forgiveness. We're supposed to turn to him for new life. His divine power—you notice the promise Peter starts the book with isn't. God's divine power has given us everything we need to be saved. That's not what he does—or to escape hell. That's not what he says. That's not his point. That's not why he's talking about the damnation of angels and the flood and that stuff. He says God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. That is what Peter believes is that— for most of us, we have not yet imagined the actual transformation we can experience. We've believed far too much in what people have said about people not changing. We've, we believe far too much in the empirical experience of our own behavior not changing, and our own hearts not changing, and people around us not changing, that we've actually bought into what's typical as what must be true. But listen— something can be the case 99% of the time. Something can be the case 99.999% of the time. Be, and that would be the typical thing. That doesn't make it the true thing. It doesn't mean that that's all that can be. It just means that that's all there normally is. Look at what world is it inspiring or honorable or noble in any way that to think that because this is the way things normally are, this is the way things must be. That's why Peter starts the book by saying, in our knowledge of Christ, in his own glory and goodness, he has given us his what? His very great and precious promises. That is what? In a world in which ungodliness is very common, he has sworn to us that in the divine power he has given us in the knowledge of Christ, godliness is possible. It's not actually all that weird. In a certain sense, it's not even all that hard. And it, it, it waits in most of us, not because— we're any worse than anybody else, but because we are so blinded by the typicalness of human depravity, and because we won't let ourselves and we won't make ourselves believe in the promise of what can be, and that what can be is not reliant on how strong you are. The book doesn't start with a call to effort. It starts with a restatement of the promise of what God has given to us. And that if we'll believe him and trust him through our knowledge of Christ, through his very great and precious promises, we can participate in the divine nature. That we can experience that. 
and it can do something in us that makes us like Jesus, and it can do something in us that will allow us to escape the corruption that is in the world with all the compulsiveness of all of our desires. Desires and addictions you don't think are possible to overcome in your friends or your spouse or your children that you don't think are possible to overcome? Typically, they're not. But we all have to decide whether or not we're going to believe in the typicalness of human experience or in the very great and precious promises of the divine Savior King who has given us the first fruits of salvation in the work of the Spirit, has also shown us the first fruits of his just damnation in those three events that we've been told about and that have come to us through reliable sources. And through which he invites us to listen to these three stories again and for them to encourage us to hear about the flood and Gomorrah and the damnation of the angels and for it to inspire hope and trust and determination and courage and humility and kindness. Because God isn't just being patient with, it says you, right? That's all of us. You, not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance. He's not just waiting on you and I to repent and come to repentance. He's waiting for you and I to go express his mercy and kindness to others in this time of patience so that they will come. And in many ways, he's, he's not just being patient with them or those who have He's being patient with us. He's waiting for us to be humble enough to not look at our enemies and say they deserve every bit of that damnation, but to look at our enemies who, who treat us maybe profoundly and justly, who enslave us in some ways, to, to see what God has prepared for those who hate him and to realize that no matter what they've done to us, we don't want that for them. It was the only thing that got me to that point with, with, the, with the man who killed my father. Just had to get somewhere in a hurry. Managed to kill my dad doing it with his car, and I hated him. I mean, I would just, I was very, very angry. You can just imagine. Seven days before my first child was born. He'd always wanted a daughter. It's the first daughter born in our family. But it wasn't until I believed this truth that no matter what he'd done to me, I didn't want what he deserved for him, and I didn't want what I deserved for me. And my self-righteousness could go away and compassion could rise where there was only hatred and where I could turn towards somebody that I wanted to merely hate and wanted to claim my right of justice and realize that he and I were both living in a time of patient mercy. That was the only way that I could withhold myself at a sentencing hearing, the only way I could write to him about the forgiveness our family wished to offer and about the forgiveness that he could find in Jesus. Do not underestimate the potency of this passage. My hope for you is that for the rest of your life, when things are at their worst, or when you are being oppressed at your most, that you would come and read this passage, and it would fill you with wonder and hope and courage for as long as it takes. Because no matter how long it takes, God is able to save the righteous through their trials. And no matter how how much they're scoffing, no matter how long you, you lay under oppression, God is able to keep the ungodly for punishment until that day if they don't turn to his mercy so that you can accept them as a brother and sister. So for the next couple of minutes, they're going to play this song again. I, 
please reflect on this. What response do you need to make? What names do you need to write on that card? Are you, does God want you to show the mercy of God through child sponsorship of a kid that's never seen somebody self-sacrificially showing mercy to them? Do you need to reconcile with somebody who you are not right with? Because listen, you don't want paper clips in your back pocket that aren't yours when Jesus comes back, much less, much less a spouse that you've been hurting for years and never reconciled with or apologized to. So as you play this, consi please consider how you're meant to respond, and then we'll come back to communion.